Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. White supremacist attacks have been on the rise. And while attacks in Pittsburgh, Charleston, and El Paso have focused attention on domestic groups in the U.S., there is a growing network of white supremacist terrorists across the world. And according to a new report from the Sufan Center, it poses a clear terrorist threat to the U.S. The Crisis Next Door welcomes back Colin Clark to talk about the rise in white supremacist groups. Colin is a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center and author of After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Colin, thanks for coming back on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks for having me. The Sufan Center has released a new report titled White Supremacy Extremism, the Transnational Rise of the Violent White Supremacist Movement. Let's talk about that transnational rise. Where are we going there? Sure. I mean, we're talking about a threat that stretches from Canada to Australia and from the United States to Ukraine. This is a global phenomenon, much as the jihadist movement is. Uh, and for far too long, we've considered it a domestic issue, um, hence the label that's often applied in, in uh, certain attacks, domestic terrorism. We, we've considered it um, of local and parochial concern. Um, and all along, uh, there have been uh, transnational connections in this growing network. And while it does stretch to all corners of the world, Ukraine, as you mentioned in there, is at the center of all of this and its years-long war against Russian-supported separatists in the Donbass. How has this civil war aided the growth of white supremacism? Well, again, to, to make another comparison to uh, the jihadi side of the house, civil wars serve as an active battle lab for terrorist and insurgent groups. And Ukraine's been no different um, in, in many ways. Uh, it's allowed groups like the Azov Battalion, which is one of the most prominent uh, neo-Nazi groups fighting in Ukraine right now, to reach out and recruit foreign fighters, to bring them over to Ukraine, to train and to radicalize. Um, and, you know, this is uh, a movement that's in need of manpower and recruits, again, much like the jihadis. And so uh, th this is a phenomenon that's been unfolding before our very eyes for years. Are the white supremacists fighting for one specific side in the Ukrainian civil war? And where are the foreign fighters coming from? No, in fact, they've been, uh, you know, they're fighting on, on both sides. They're actually fighting uh, with the Ukrainians and against the Ukrainians. So it's, it's really interesting. Uh, they've been fighting uh, with the Russians as well. Uh, our report goes into some of the numbers that we've seen. Um, and uh, I'll just give you... Um, a quick rundown of, of the top 10 where we've seen some of these foreign fighters coming from. Russia, Belarus, Germany, Georgia, Serbia, Moldova, France, Croatia, Italy, and Austria. Um, but there's many other countries as well. 17,000 foreign fighters in total. But I, I just would like to, to clarify something because I'm not suggesting that all 17,000 of those foreign fighters are indeed white supremacists. Um, however, uh, there, just as we saw with the jihadis, individuals that go over uh, and fight in these conflicts that may go over for uh, all sorts of different reasons. Some might be legitimate white supremacists. 
Others might be going for a sense of adventure, yet others are looking uh, to go um, out of uh, a sense of peer pressure because their friends go. We see that kinship networks play a prominent role. Um, but actually being there on the ground and fighting alongside these groups, they may very well uh, come over and radicalize and, and, and turn to uh, that side. So we don't know. It's very murky. Uh, we do know that this is uh, a major issue and one that's largely been ignored. Are these separatists sprinkled throughout different forces? You mentioned the Azov Battalion. It's of known repute. Or are there other specific groups that center on this particular ideology, such as what we see in Syria with various jihadist groups? Yeah, so Azov's certainly at the center of uh, the, you know, this constellation of groups, but but there's a number of other lesser-known groups that are active. Um, and moreover, you know, we've got to be careful about lone actors as well. Um, and so we see individuals that go over, fight, and then return back to the United States uh, seeking to do harm and, and, you know, maybe kind of on the outskirts of these networks. We've seen prominent American neo-Nazi groups like the Adamwaffen Division uh, and uh, the Rise Above Movement, uh, RAM or RAM, active in this space, going over, training with, uh, with Azov and others, attending uh, UFC-style uh, mixed martial arts fights together and doing the kind of bonding and, uh, you know, that we've seen, uh, you know, foreign fighters engage in throughout time. It's easy to lump terrorists into one group, whether jihadist or WSCs. We'll, we'll use that occasionally for white supremacist ext- sure. extremists, just to shorten that uh, phrase a little bit. But as we've seen with the jihadists, there are very different ideologies fueling these various groups. Is that the same for white supremacists? Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, it, it exists along a spectrum, right? Some are less committed. Some are a lot more um, hardcore ideologues. Uh, and again, this can kind of change over time. We've seen people radicalize and become more intense and more uh, convicted in their beliefs, as we've seen others kind of age out, so to speak. So uh, by no means is this a monolith, but that's also what makes it uh, so challenging, is that there isn't one typology for the type of person that goes over there, uh, and that there isn't a silver bullet to countering uh, these types of networks. Islamic jihadists and white supremacists obviously have very different goals, but many of their tactics are similar. Have the white supremacists copied the jihadist playbook when it comes to recruiting over social media, and how critical is social media for recruitment and financing? Yeah, so social media is is critical to pretty much everything we do, right, in the world today. Um, You know, there's no uh, Fortune 500 company that's without uh, an active uh, social media presence. And it's the same for any type of non-state actor, you know, whether that's uh, an NGO or a terrorist group. And, and yeah, these guys have figured out, um, you know, how to recruit vulnerable individuals to their group, how to spread their propaganda online. Um, much of the jihadis have done. Um, and I think actually the, you know, the radicalization and the emulation of tactics, techniques, and procedures goes both ways. In many ways, the jihadis copied off of white supremacist extremists in adopting this model of leaderless uh, resistance, or leaderless jihad, as they called it. Um, and uh, in turn, white supremacist extremists have watched what happens on the battlefield uh, in Iraq and, Afgan- and Afghanistan uh, and attempted to copy some of those tactics. Indeed, many of the uh, you know, fighters we're concerned about have prior military experience in armed forces, whether that's the American military uh, or the Canadian or, or other kind of um, military. So they bring with them a certain set of experience, and they're always looking to uh, to adapt, evolve, and uh, figure out what works best in these different contexts. 
do you think a case of one-upsmanship exists between jihadist and white supremacist where one group will see the other post a violent attack on video and then the other tries to emulate that one? I think we are seeing some of that, you know, particularly if you look at what happened in Christchurch and then Sri Lanka. Um, even if that's not the original attention of the attacker, this kind of online environment and, and all these quote-unquote fanboys that engage in kind of social media activity uh, parrot and echo uh, these sentiments. And so there is a yin and yang, and I think that's really dangerous uh, because as one drives the next um, and one attempts to outdo the next, as we saw with Brenton Tarrant, the, the Christchurch attacker, um, he upped the stakes by live streaming his attack. And so um, we're, we're concerned that that's going to happen again or that uh, the number of people killed becomes what's focused on, right? And they're, they're, um, as both sides try to achieve higher body counts or higher lethality rates, which is really concerning. YouTube and other Internet sites have been infiltrated with white supremacist recruiting videos. But are these groups using other sites for primary communication and recruitment? And how helpful is that to law enforcement? Yeah, so there's Gab, there's Achan, there's a number of, uh, of sites, there's Telegram. Uh, how hopeful is it? You know, unfortunately, uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies have been one or two steps behind. Uh, and that's just the nature of the business because uh, they come from more kind of cumbersome bureaucratic backgrounds. Um, and these networks are a bit more nimble uh, and able to kind of get out ahead. And as some of these sites are shut down, other ones pop up, um, you know, a little bit. Uh, remiss to use the cliche, but it is it is like whack-a-mole, right, where you shut one down and the next one pops up. And so uh, it's very difficult to counter. It's very difficult to predict where these individuals and networks will go next. Are you seeing enough movement, uh, not just from Washington, but from the various tech companies to quash this type of behavior? You know, we've seen some, uh, and that's encouraging, but I don't think we've seen enough. I don't think... Um, uh, many tech companies understand the gravity of the threat. Uh, and again, that's not to paint them all with a broad brush um, because they are trying to respond to a number of different kind of uh, emergencies, right? Um, this being simply one of them. We have seen um, Facebook and others kind of come out with their own definition of what terrorism is, and, and my hat's off. Uh, they know that these are vile individuals uh, and that they shouldn't be treated with a double standard, right? So jihadis or white supremacist extremists or incels or whatever the ideology is that's motivating political violence uh, needs to be countered and needs to be kept off these platforms. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the rise in white supremacist groups with Colin Clark, a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center. Any movement of consequence needs money. Where do white supremacist groups get their financing, and how critical are cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin for these groups? They're becoming increasingly uh, more relevant, uh, Bitcoin and, and other uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, crowdfunding is, is a popular method, uh, and so... Uh, again, we see that these are individuals that are constantly thinking two or three steps ahead. Uh, we've seen white supremacist extremists um, accrue wealth through both licit and illicit sources of finance. Uh, we've seen them accrue, move, and store wealth through um, various means. Um, but as payment processors curb access to their platforms, the groups have relied on, you know, as you mentioned, cryptocurrencies and other alternatives to fiat currency. Uh, and again, that's something that uh, it requires, um, you know, a range of stakeholders to get involved, uh, not only governments, but also the private sector. 
um, you know, and these various partnerships that we've put together in the past. I've been reading about U.S. cyber warfare moves against ISIS, infiltrating ISIS networks, dropping malware in its servers, looking for folders with key data like encryption keys and passwords. How effective would cyber warfare be against WSE groups? Are they as technologically sophisticated as ISIS? You know, I'd argue that they are. Um, I'd I'd say that there's this kind of stereotype we have of a kind of backward-thinking, uneducated, um, you know, for lack of a better term, quote-unquote, a redneck. But but I'd say that a typology um, has remained elusive, and I think it's wrong to kind of um, to, to think of it in those terms, yeah, many of these individuals are digital natives. Uh, so I think cyber warfare would be uh, effective, but at the same time, we can't put the cart before the horse. Uh, we don't have the authorities or the laws or the policies to go after these groups until they're actually designated as such. ISIS is a different animal. Um, ISIS has been designated by the United States as a, as a foreign terrorist organization, but many of these other networks are, are operating in the shadows um, and, and, and you know, in some ways kind of uh, have remained below the radar because they haven't been officially designated. And in your report, you mentioned the fact that the U.K. and Canada have sanctioned transnational WSE groups as foreign terrorist organizations. How would a move like that benefit the U.S. and local law enforcement in pursuing these groups? Well, it allows you know the United States to uh, to have the resources to block the movement of assets of those designated. Um, it allows the Department of Justice to prosecute individuals for providing material support to designated groups. So it opens up a whole array of options that we're lacking now, but desperately need. How paltry are these resources, and have we seen any of that change at all with the amplitude in the number of attacks over the past couple of years? So I think the needle is moving, but it's moving too slow uh, for, for many, including myself. Um, I don't know how many more attacks we have to see uh, before something, uh, before the sense of urgency is elevated. I think uh, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, did a nice job releasing its latest uh, counterterrorism strategy, where it does highlight the importance of combating white supremacist extremist groups. Uh, but again, that's one agency and a broad government, um, and for too long, uh, you know, we've been, I, I call it the 9-11 effect. We were hit so hard on 9-11 uh, that we've been unable to shake this focus on just al-Qaeda and just the Islamic State. Uh, and it's not either or, right? It's we need to be going after them all at the same time. Pretty staggering when you look at the numbers of white supremacist attacks in the U.S., over the past 15 years, and your report really gets into that, I, like you said, I think a lot of people really worry about Islamic jihadist attacks following 9-11, but the burden of the attacks have really fallen on white supremacists since that time. Yeah, no question, and the, the data proves that and, and bears that out. Um, but I think there's kind of, there, there's other elements at play. There's culture, there's politics, there's history, um, right? And so uh, that's something that we've got to work hard to overcome. And part of that uh, is education, right? And kind of explaining to people and doing what we're doing with this report of saying, look, um, you know, we're agnostic to to what motivates these people. If it's jihadists that are killing people, uh, we'll be writing about them. If it's white supremacist extremists, we'll be writing about them and trying to shine a light uh, on these networks in order to make sure that they, they receive no quarter on U.S. soil or elsewhere. Do you think if U.S. law enforcement had the proper funding for the resources it needs to go after WSEs, that it would be just as effective in limiting those attacks as it has against Islamic jihadists since 9-11? I do think so. I mean, I think we have world-class intelligence and law enforcement. Um, Unfortunately, there's often a lag effect, right, 
by the time you get the money, you put together these teams, you figure out who to go after. It takes some time to get up and running. Uh, you know, agencies like the FBI are doing a phenomenal job, and and uh, you know, I'm incredibly thankful that we have uh, the FBI and others that are already disrupting major plots. Um, uh, but we need uh, a more concerted, full-throated effort. How does the international community fare by comparison in the battle against WSEs? Yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, really. You know, I think uh, Germany, the UK, Canada, and others uh, have a you know uh, a different history, and so they've approached it in a different way. Um, I think rather than talking about these countries as individually, we should be talking about uh, the the threat in the same way we do with ISIS, which is we talk about the global coalition to counter ISIS, right? We should have a global coalition to counter uh, white supremacist extremism because it presents itself uh, in much the same way. Now, it's very interesting with ISIS. Uh, the caliphate was destroyed in Syria, also in Iraq, but yet ISIS continues, and it's shown up in other parts of the world, whether it's Asia or Africa, as well as the Middle East. Are we looking at the same situation with white supremacists, perhaps they could be curtailed in large degree, but you'll never fully get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's most likely. This is about mitigating, not fully fully defeating. If we're being honest with ourselves, um, unfortunately, this you know very virulent uh, ideology exists. It uh, it spreads online, um, and again, I think you know it's a long term strategy. But education is critical, and in the meantime, uh, you know, we need to be disrupting plots. We need to be uh, you know capturing and prosecuting those that seek to, to do harm in the name of this hateful ideology. Fascinating research. Colin, thank you so much for coming back on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We've been joined by Colin Clark, Senior Research Fellow at the Sufan Center and author of After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. I'm Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.